In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that, that was its name. The man gave names to all of the livestock, to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper for, fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon him. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to Adam, brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So, you know, this week, um, I noticed in the news that, you know, there is a new COVID variant and governments are starting to look and the Biden administration is considering, you know, do they need to do something or do we need to do something? And I'm sure that won't be a controversial decision at all, whatever they land. But, you know, um, <clears throat> we have an epidemic in our society that has nothing to do with viruses and it cannot be addressed with a vaccine. And that epidemic is loneliness. Loneliness. From the, from the scienceofpeople.com, let me quote, 2018 loneliness statistics show that 30% of older adults reported loneliness. 
Survey data from 2019 shows that 58% of Americans often felt like no one in their life knew them well. Most Americans are seeking more friendships and connectedness now than ever before, end quote. In January of 2023, Gallup did a survey, and they asked the question along these lines. They said, at some point yesterday, did you feel a lot of loneliness? Were you, by and large, lonely yesterday? And in January of 2023, 17% of American adults reported these deep feelings of loneliness. Now, the good news is that was down from the height of COVID. At the height of COVID, that answer was 25% of American adults. So we've kind of returned to pre-COVID levels, which is good, but it's obvious that we clearly still have an epidemic of loneliness. And that epidemic creates a host of other problems. In many respects, I'm going to say something, and I don't mean this, this is in no way a political statement, okay? Loneliness kills more people every year than a COVID virus does, okay? Because of the increase in stress and the stress that then causes deaths, of anxiety, of depression, of absurd levels of anger, and everything that's associated with this, and so it's actually not only a, you know, a psychologically dangerous issue that we have going on, it affects people existentially. So I, I bring this up because our church has certain values. Every church has values. What makes you, you know, get excited about things? What drives you? And we have six values, one of which recognizes how pervasive this epidemic of loneliness is. One of our six values reads like this, it is connecting intentionally. This is one of our six values that we connect. You've already heard Andrea talk about it and Don and Mary talk about it. And I almost said, you know what? I don't think I need to preach. I should just come up and say amen because they said a lot of what I want to emphasize in a different way this morning. Connecting intentionally. In a world of isolation and loneliness, we deliberately invite people to experience gospel community with us. We believe here at Covenant Church, that the best antidote to lo for loneliness is for each of us to be living in authentic biblical community with one another. That, that phrase, biblical community, you heard it already. We have it here in our value statement, and it's, it's gospel community. You'll hear of it different ways in our church on a consistent basis. Biblical community, authentic biblical community, Christian community, gospel community, a discipleship group, a small group. All these things are referring to this idea of living in biblical community with one another. So what is that? What is biblical community? Well, I want to give you the simplest, maybe few-word definition that I could come up with. Biblical community is us being Jesus to one another. Let's read it out loud. Ready? Biblical community is us being Jesus to one another. Authentic biblical community is the body of Christ expressing the life of Christ, of communicating and expressing the gospel of Jesus Christ, to one another so that we build one another up in our walk with God and we are used by God to redeem the world for his glory. It has an inward, an upward, and an outward manifestation to, its, to it. Biblical community is us being Jesus to one another. The idea 
of living an authentic biblical community is actually reflected in several of our values. Connecting intentionally, absolutely. But the very first value of our church is that we live authentically with one another. Living authentically with one another means that we have to do life together. We have to know each other. We have to understand what's going on in each other's lives. It means that we don't wear masks with one another and live hypocritically with one another, but that we're honest with where we are at in our life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to to refer to one of my favorite Clint Eastwood movies, okay? That's what it means to live authentically, to pray dependently with one another and for one another. And then an important value of our church, to care genuinely for one another. All of these things happen within the context of biblical community. The importance of community to our church is reflected this week. Last week, Jonathan talked about us being a church of small groups, not a church with small groups. This is not just some add-on thing that we have, like a children's ministry, youth ministry, whatever. This is part of the DNA of our church. It is that vital to us here at Covenant. We believe that small discipleship groups are the best ministry option for us to pour our energy into so that we can live in biblical community with one another. The, the, The small discipleship groups are simply the means to where we hope we are experiencing biblical community. That's the method. If another method comes along at some point in Christian history that we think will help us experience biblical community better than small discipleship groups, well, then we'll pivot and we'll change. But as of now, we think that's the best way to experience that. And hopefully... All of this, what I just said, helps you better understand why we have a weekend like this and why we try to encourage you and to help you to connect into a discipleship group. Living in biblical community with one another at Covenant, it's not just some tactic that will help us grow broader and larger numerically. Living in biblical community is not focused on us growing larger as a church. It is focused on us growing deeper as a church, becoming disciples of Jesus Christ. And we think the very best environment to become a disciple, a follower, is in biblical community with one another. I became convinced of this more than 25 years ago when I really began to experience for the first time, after being a Christian most of my life, after having been a pastor for many years, after having experienced all kinds of ministries within the normal church, I was in a church where they understood biblical community and spiritual godly men took me under their wing and they helped me to see how effective and how powerful biblical community can be. So for me, this is a conviction of my heart. I became convinced of it scripturally, and that's some of the things that we're going to look at this morning of why we stress biblical community so much. I became convinced then of the central truth that I want to give you this morning as our takeaway truth. As image bearers of God, we are hardwired to live in biblical community. As image bearers of God, we are hardwired to live in biblical community. And we see this in our passage this morning in Genesis. There's actually a couple of examples that I want us to kind of go to this morning where we can see pictures of biblical community that help support this idea that because we're image bearers of God, 
We're hardwired to live in community. To not live in community is to live opposite of how God has created us. So let's first begin by looking at the earliest biblical community in Genesis, the opening pages of Genesis, where we see that biblical community stems from the very person of God. In the opening pages, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the deep, and the Spirit of God was over, hovering over the earth. And the passage continues to describe the creative activity of God. And on one day, he creates this. The second time, he creates this. And at the end of every creative period of time, God declares, it's good, it's good. On the sixth day, he creates the land animals. And then in chapter 1, we read where he creates man and woman. And, and he says at chapter 1, it was, it was good, created in the image of God. And in fact, it says specifically, let us create man in our image, male and female, he created them. The us, our, there's a plurality there, isn't it? And, and that reflects something that is distinct about the God of Christianity. Christianity's God is very different than the God of other religions, even other monotheistic religions. Our God is one, yet he exists as three persons within that oneness. One in essence, one in substance, equal in power and equality and glory as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So they're one in essence and substance, each is equal in power and authority and glory, and they are distinguished by their personal properties as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit take different roles. This idea of biblical community, it revolves around the oneness of the Godhead. And this is what we see here in Genesis. Even throughout the scriptures, we see this reference to the oneness of God and how as one God, they enjoyed one another, they love one another, they serve one another, they support one another, they defer to one another, they glorify one another. Next week, we're gonna be in John 17. In that passage, in the high priestly prayer of Jesus, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The existence of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has been this perfect community with one another, this oneness where they experience the love, support, and glory together. And so when God created us in his image, let us, plural, create man, create woman in our image, he created within us as part of his image, the need for community. Let's think back about the creation of Adam. And just so you know, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are, are two different accounts, giving different emphasis. They look at the creation account from different perspectives. Genesis 1 is much more high level, and it gives you the whole scope of those those creative days. Genesis 2 focuses on just the creation of humanity and the man and the woman, and it gets more granular. And so when you put these two things together, here's what you see. 
After God created the animals, he then creates Adam out of the dirt of the ground. And where Adam is different than the animals is that God breathes into him, giving him a living soul. This is what makes us different than our dogs and cats and other animals. Is we have an eternal, immortal soul. We've been created in the image of God. I love dogs. Don't care for cats. They came after the fall. But in the... <laughs> okay, sorry. Work that in there. Um, but your dog, your cat, they were not created in the image of God. And it seems like they are because sometimes they're smarter than our kids. But they weren't created in the image of God. We are. And because we're created in the image of God, we have this need. Adam is created. He's, he's breathed into. He becomes a living soul. And then God puts him in the garden, this perfect garden where he begins to bring to Adam the animals and the birds. And, animal, and, and Adam begins to exercise his dominion over creation. And he begins to name the different animals. He's doing the work of God. He's experiencing the presence of God and the pleasure of God. There's no sin. He has perfect communion with God, which is awesome. Because as human beings created in the image of God, we have created within us a void that only God can fill. It's referred to as that God-shaped void. And humanity ever since the fall has done everything it can to fill that God-shaped void with different things in creation to provide satisfaction. And it doesn't work. Whether it's money or career or popularity or sex or prestige or toys, none of those things can fill that God-shaped void. Only God can fill that. And in the garden, that void in Adam's life was filled. He walked with God. He enjoyed interaction with God, communion with God perfectly. But there's another implication in this passage. Because Adam was created in the image of God, because we are. God is community, as one author puts it. He creates community within us. It is his gift to humanity. We're hardwired for community. And so there was a problem, as you see in Genesis chapter 2. Adam is alone. There is no one like him. And God says, this is not good. His work in naming the animals and doing the, the, the work of God that he had been assigned could not fill this void. His enjoyment of the fruit and the food of creation could not fill this void. In fact, his walks with God in the garden could not fill this void within him. You see, we not only have a God-shaped void within us, we have a human-shaped void within us, a void that only community with other human beings can fulfill. Nothing in creation can fill it. Just as money and career and you know, popularity, toys, vacations, recreation, sex, whatever it may be, cannot fill the God-shaped void, those things cannot fill the community, the human-shaped void that is within us. None of these things can do it. How many of you have ever been on a project before in your job? Raise your hand. Many of you, yes, many, many of you. Lots of you are engineers. You've been on projects. I've run projects. 
as a project manager. You, do you know what the two most hated words are on a project? Change order. Yeah, I'll let you guys start naming. In fact, before we began the construction project, we met with the architect and with the contractor. And you know what we had to talk about? Change orders. And I remember saying in that meeting, we're not going to have change orders because we're going to design it right up front. No change orders. And pretty much we've done pretty good. We've had a few, but no major impacts. Change orders. Those are dirty words in a project because it can just turn everything upside down, make you undo all this work that you did. It's very frustrating, especially when your client can't make up their mind and it's change order after change order after change order. Some of you have lived that. Well, how about this? Randy Frazee writes, community is the only change order in creation. Community is the only change order because God looks at Adam and he sees his aloneness that he is, that there's no community for him. And he says, this is not good. It's not good. You see, we read Genesis 1 and we see he created, and, and, it's, and it's all very good. When does he declare that it's very good? Only after he created Eve. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 18, we read, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then it continues to say, and then he makes a suitable helper by pulling a rib out of him and creating uh, this woman. And Adam sees her and he names her woman. You know why he named her woman? Because he looked at her and he goes, whoa, man. man that's a, woohoo. No, that's a, okay. I had to get a bad dad joke in there somewhere. And that was my bad dad joke. All right, so don't you love how popular dad jokes have gotten on the internet recently? I mean, I'm, a, I'm, I'm seriously addicted to them. It's not good. But here's this woman, and he loves what he sees. And by the way, ladies, it says that, you are, that the woman was the suitable helper for the man. I want you to understand something. When it talks about the woman being the helper there, this is not some weak word that expresses inferiority or inequality. This is the word that God uses for himself repeatedly in the scriptures. Think about all the times where he proclaims himself to be our shield and our what? Helper. And God, as our helper, is not saying that in some way he's inferior. Of course not. He's superior. It is a powerful word. It is a word of capability and ability and the capacity of strength. And Eve, as created in, out of Adam, is now fully participating in the image of God. She fully shares the dominion mandate that was given to Adam. And you see this in in Genesis 1, verse 28, where the man and the woman are assigned to be stewards of the earth. So when Eve was created, what occurs is that the communal nature of God now steps into the world within the line of human history. And forever from this point on, biblical community can then be experienced and expressed. And as a result of her coming into the world, Creation is now not good, but very good. So ladies, everything you touch becomes very good, right? Right, fellas? Oh, come on. Oh, fellas, you're in trouble now. <laughs> <laughs> I just teed it up for you to say amen. 
I mean, everything the ladies touch makes it very good, right, fellas? Amen. There you go. Redeem yourself. Redeem yourself. Okay? Hey, listen, the earliest biblical community experienced by Adam and Eve, it reflected the oneness of God. Those days in the garden before sin enters the world, it's perfect community. Oneness with one another as each is in submission to God, as each selflessly loves one another, as each supports the other, serves one another, each has responsibilities and power and authority. And then, of course, Genesis 3 comes along. And Genesis 3, the fall, sin comes in. The man and the woman, they sin, they rebel against God. Their perfect community with God is now destroyed and broken. And their perfect community with one another is broken and destroyed and sin and death and all of that we experience in this life is now introduced into human history. And if that was the end of the story, the Bible would be a very depressing book. It would be a very discouraging book. But that's not the end of the story. I don't want us to end there this morning. I want us to end with the hope of the gospel and what it shows us in the final chapters of the Bible. We, we started in the beginning, the opening chapters, where community is created and then ultimately broken. At the end of the Bible, you see a picture of community being healed and restored, and the story of the gospel comes to its conclusion. In Revelation 21, verse 5, Jesus says, Behold, I create all things. I'm making all things new. And immediately after that pronouncement, we see that God's ultimate plan is to reconcile his children to himself and to establish an eternal community that will last forever. And so in these verses in chapter 21, when Jesus makes this proclamation, immediately after the proclamation, we read this from the apostle John. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the 12 gates, 12 angels and the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the son of Israel were inscribed. On the east, there were three, and on the north, three, on the south, three, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. All right, what does that mean? Okay, well, first of all, let's, let's remember that the book of Revelation... It's not like the book of Genesis. It's not historical narrative. It's not like the, the, you know, the book of Luke that we're going to be in starting next month. It's not a gospel account, a gospel narrative. It's not like Romans that we were in or Colossians earlier this year. It's not an epistle filled with didactic type of teaching. Instead, it's one of only a couple of books in the Bible that are a genre of literature known as apocalyptic. An apocalyptic genre is very 
uh, symbolic. It's filled with, you know, kind of at times crazy symbols and, and metaphors and illustrations. And it's like, what does this mean? And with apocalyptic, you're, you're not supposed to interpret it absolutely literal. It's not how you interpret apocalyptic writings. It's metaphor that has, is pointing us to a literal, biblical, spiritual truth, but the imagery itself is not what you interpret literally. It's that truth that it's pointing to that you interpret literally. And so what you have here is a metaphorical city. And how do you know that? Well, let's go back to the very beginning of these verses. The angel says to John, come, I want to show you the, the wife, the bride, the wife of the lamb. Let's work backwards. In the scriptures, children, you got to be, you know, under 12th grade to answer this question. Children, in the Bible, who is the lamb of God? No, who is the lamb of God? Yeah, there you go, Jesus. Jesus is the lamb of God. Okay, now, who is the bride of the lamb? Church, there you go, that's it. She was already predicting my question, that's right. In the Bible, the lamb is Christ, and the bride of Christ is the church. And when we talk here about the bride of Christ, we're not just talking about our church. We're talking about every man, woman, and child through the millennia who have looked to Jesus for salvation and the forgiveness of their sins. And that could be people who were on the other side of the cross, and it could be people who are on, like us on this side of the cross. And how do we know that it includes the people on the other side of the cross? Who are the 12 gates of this city? It's the 12 tribes of Israel. And who are the 12 foundations? It's the apostles that we are built upon. And so it's, this is a picture of all the people of God through the millennia who trust and, point and put their faith in Christ whether it was before the cross or after the cross, this is a picture of true Israel, to use the language of Paul in the book of Romans. This is a picture of the bride of Christ. All the people from every tongue and tribe and nation and people that God has pulled out through the centuries to be a part of his family. And this is the final picture of who they are. This isn't meant to be a literal city. And you know it, because if it were a literal city, it would be a solid cube of gold and precious jewels that is 1,400 miles high and 1,400 miles wide and 1,400 miles deep. It would cover all the Middle East. And just the very top floor of this city would host 2 million biblical cities of Jerusalem. Okay? This is not a, a literal city. This is a metaphor, and it's pointing us to God's final work, how he has gathered everyone together into a perfect eternal community. A city, another name for a city is what? A community. And this is a community of oneness, where we now go back to the garden, where we can have perfect communion with our Lord forever and ever and why? Because at this point, sin has been defeated and death has been defeated and our risen Lord is reigning supreme and he's now handing the kingdom over to the Father. That's what's happening here. This eternal community, this perfect city that we see in Revelation, this is the conclusion of God's 
redemptive plan that began all the way back in the opening pages of Genesis. And it's now coming to fruition. And the reason why is because this is a plan that Christ died for to bring about. It was on the cross that Jesus paid for our sins, those very sins which ruin our oneness with first God and then one another. It was on the cross that Jesus restores our community with God and our communion with God. Even now, those of us who trust in Christ, we find that our communion with God has been restored. Is it perfect communion? Not yet, because we still live in a fallen world. But Revelation 21 is the picture of when we no longer live in a fallen world. And now our communion is perfect. In other words, for every one of you who knows Christ as your Savior, there's going to come a day when you can, like Adam, walk with God in the garden in the cool of the evening, fellowshipping and communing with Him. We will see our Savior face to face and live with Him eternally. So the question is this this morning. What kind of community do you have? You know, most do not have any kind of community with God. Most in our world reject him. They're at odds with our creator. And as a result of this, and that's you this morning, I need to warn you, you have no hope for community and for communion with your creator until you address the state of your heart and soul. You, you need to figure out, what am I going to do with Jesus? Because Jesus is the way, he is the one who restores our communion with God. He's the one who pays the price for those sins. So this morning, if you are lonely, and you look at yourself and you say, yeah, I, I'm lonely, is it because you have failed to commit your life to Christ? It starts there. If you're a Christian and you would say, yeah, I, I actually am lonely, well, then I would ask you, you, you've committed your life to Christ and maybe you're having that communion with God, but have you committed yourself to living in biblical community with other believers? If not, that's where you start to address your loneliness. My prayer for each of you this morning is regardless of the source of your loneliness, if it's because you've yet to commit to Christ, or it's because you have yet to connect with others in biblical community. Now, this morning, you'd make a decision that would change the direction of your life. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you've done in our world. We thank you for dying so that we could live in community with one another and with our Creator. We thank you for your sacrifice. And I ask that you would work in the hearts and minds of those who are here. For those whose loneliness stems out of deep disconnection from you, They've yet to turn to you and trust in you. I would ask that you would convict them of their need to begin that relationship even today. And Father, for the one whose loneliness is because they have cut themselves off from biblical community, would you give them the courage to take a step of faith this morning and begin to investigate connecting with other brothers and sisters in Christ. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.